Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Where am I going to go where this anxiety monster won't follow me? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You have no way out. I didn't stand up until this finally came to me. I don't have a way out, but I do have a way in. I caught that there was a voice in my head telling me to run and fight and hide. And that that voice, if it was noticed by me, wasn't just me. You know, the awareness part of me that noticed the voice wasn't the voice. Yeah. And part of me just rebelled against the dictator within. You know, I actually said out loud, you can make me hurt, you can make me suffer, but I'll tell you one thing you can't do. You can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. Thinking that I was having a heart attack, but then finding that I wasn't. And then making a declaration of independence. that I am not going to run from me and you can't make me. Well, that's a transformational moment. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. As regular listeners will often hear me say, we are not our thoughts, we are aware of our thoughts. This is a profound insight that can have a huge impact on your experience of life and is the cornerstone of acceptance and commitment therapy. This week, I'm truly delighted to be joined by Stephen Hayes, the founder of ACT. 
I really think ACT is one of the most profoundly helpful psychological interventions in the world. While so many other approaches focus on changing the content of your thinking, for example, from negative to positive, this is all about changing how you relate to your thoughts and feelings. And it is a marked difference. ACT is all about developing psychological flexibility, which is described as the superpower of mental health and well-being, which essentially means being able to be with whatever is taking place in your experience at any given moment without resistance or clinging. It's about settling into awareness where there are no problems and operating in the world from that place. I've had first-hand experience of the power of ACT. In my 20s, I had bad insomnia that I was really trying to fix unsuccessfully. ACT taught me to stop fighting it and let it settle on its own. And it worked. Stephen himself developed the acceptance method after he started having severe panic attacks. And he shares so many valuable insights in this conversation. If you enjoy listening and could share it, I'd be very grateful. Stephen Hayes, what a pleasure it is to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So am I. And you're looking very well, may I say? <laughs> well, I feel pretty good this morning. Good. Now, I've got to ask you the question. Are you the most prolific psychologist on the planet? Because, frankly, the rate at which you churn out papers and books is staggering. It's 40 plus books, hundreds of papers. It's remarkable. Yeah, well, I when, when I listen to that, I, the thought in the back of my head is, get a life, Steve. Oh, my God. But no, it's just that I've been at it for so long. And I have a very, very regular thing. And you know, I put out a paper about every three weeks and a book every year, or a book and a third every year. And if you do that for 40 years, you end up with some pretty big numbers. You, yeah, certainly. Now, I hope you don't mind me giving your age away, but you're in your 70s. Do you ever no. plan to stop? Or is this a lifelong calling in the sort of Albert Ellis mold? Oh, it's a lifelong calling for sure. And, you know, but I, I don't, I kind of feel like in the end, you're going to be forgotten and it's going to disappear, but you have an opportunity to put something into the cultural stream that might make a difference. As I usually say, it is for your children's children's children. Yeah. So it, it, I often do it this way. I say, name your, your great grandparents, their full names, including their maiden names. And I've done this over and over again. It's about one out of a hundred people can do it. So that means that Dude, you know, your children's children's children won't even know who your name is and what your name is. So it's not about, uh, you know, oh, boy, if I do this, I'll get a prize, get an achievement. I'll be remembered forever. And uh, no, you won't. You won't. But what we're doing now is the result of things that went before. And, you know, we're talking across how many thousands of miles right now in real time? Even 20 years ago, we couldn't do it. Think of all the people who had to do what they had to do so that we could do this. Hundreds of thousands of people, you know, just to, to lay the wires, to build the thing, to create the thing. So they're part of our conversation. We don't know them. So it's like that. Is uh, It's a fun game to play. In the end, it's a big ice ball, but meanwhile, let's play. Absolutely. What a lovely uh, turn of phrase. And you've got many. And you said something quite interesting there about how we won't be remembered. You know, don't kid mm -hmm. yourself. You're not going to be remembered. And I think that's such a important and profound point because actually the way so many people strive these days is for the aggrandizement of, of oh, their yeah. conceptual self, right? And I'm pretty sure that I'm 
taking from what you're saying and what I know of your work that we've got that the wrong way around, right? Yeah, it's toxic and it's tempting and we all do it because we do have a conceptualized self. We probably need it. You know, I'm a male and I'm 74 and I'm a psychologist and I wrote this book and so forth. Yeah, but, you know, when your mama's eyes looked in yours when you were just born and you went, ah, you dumped endorphins, none of that was true. You were disconnected in consciousness to others and being welcomed into the human community where belonging was a birthright. And then we spend the rest of our life, once we really get the language machine going, uh, trying to earn our way back to belonging as a birthright. I mean, it's kind of pathetic in a way, if you think about it, but it's kind of sweet and sad and poignant that we're these cooperative primates who invented this thing called language that has now turned on us and tried to put us into clown suits where we can earn our way in. And as soon as you do that, you can never make it because if you're not there yet, you know, what can I do to belong? Well, you can either be pathetic and they'll let you in or you'll be great and grand and they're letting you in. But either way, if you do it deliberately, you kind of know that you're tricking people. And when they do let you in, you feel as though you don't belong anyway. Yeah. I mean, so in the modern world, we have the narcissism thing just rising just insanely, you know, because people all have their Instagram pages and all that kind of stuff. And they're looking at other people's outsides, comparing it to their insides. But uh, we need help to get back to be whole and free. And that means to connect with this deeper sense of uh, being in the world as a conscious human being. And from that, being able to create and play and do things, but not buy an end to the story. Can I say a quick little thing? Because you, you mentioned that you're going to actually has some folks who are involved in psychedelic therapy and so forth on and on your podcast. And, you know, when you look at, at things like that, you see that it's almost like a parasite. You know, you can do the research to show that your concept of yourself is filtering out sensory and sensory motor information so much so that it never reaches consciousness. You literally don't know the world you live in. And then, of course, psychedelic shows up, knocks those uh, gatekeeper functions out of the midbrain structures that have been harnessed by this language parasite, to, you know, harnessing parts of the brain that are a thousand times older. So, boy, the uh, conceptualized self is necessary, but it's probably one of the most toxic forces on the planet. Yes. And yet we live in the the age where it, it's all about that, isn't it? Whether it be polishing that conceptual part of ourselves, or or uh, you know, grandizing it, making it stand out, like you say. And um, so you call it um, a parasite, and you know, you're talking about the ego, really, aren't you? Yeah. And, and and perhaps not the ego in the way that it was yeah. initially defined, you know, but like just this, the idea of who we are, and yet. It's such a deep cultural conditioning that we have that, that so few people question whether or not that is truly who they are. Yeah, although, you know, something like 98% of the human population has had a spiritual experience, if you ask about it, right? Not necessarily theistic, but it all has a sense of oneness across time, place, and person. It all messes around with that, that sense of self that clown yeah. suit, that little cage we live inside that was self-constructed. And so 
It's not like we don't know. We do know. The problem is, is that the language parasite doesn't know because it's out there problem solving and trying to earn this way into belonging. And it thinks it's going to do it by content. It's going to do it by being good enough or being needy enough. And it's not going to do it. So I do think deeply everybody knows this is a rigged game. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But the organ between their ears doesn't know and never will. No. And we identify or so prone to identifying and so conditioned to identify with that. I mean, you said earlier, I'm a man, I'm a psychologist, you know, and we can roll the list on. I'm a father, sure. I, I'm kind, I'm funny, blah, 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 blah. On and on it goes. And um, you know, if you say, who are you? Or what do you refer to when you say I to pretty much anyone? That's the route they'll go down. They yeah. won't mention the other thing yeah. that you point no, to. They won't. If they looked at you and said, I'm you, you'd freak you out. You know? <laughs> but that's true, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is deeply true. Because if you get back to this deepest, you know, I hear nowness of awareness, you know, that's why you dump endorphins when mama's kind eyes meet. The, the we is like a microsecond away from the me, me, me. And it's so cool it's it's like sitting on the, into a hot tub or something and we instantly recognize it you know if you meet that moment with a lover or something you instantly recognize that you're home in yeah. some deep way yeah that's that's what love is isn't it the recognition it of our shared being i think it is i think it's a really really good and well out of that various forms come come that we could say yeah. is loving you know like you would be concerned about uh, the suffering of others or yeah but i really think the bedrock is consciousness itself and if you wanted a good word for that you know, love would be a really good word and if you wanted to get down to a letter you could get it down to the letter b b over i well just being i mean oh, just being, being, yeah, being just yeah. being that um yeah. but yeah um if you get an email from me, you're going to have a little kicker that says uh, love and love isn't everything. It's the only thing. Yeah. It's just a little play on a sports thing. You know, winning isn't everything. It's it. It's the only thing. But uh, I do think there's something so about that. Yeah. I mean, you can take any CEO, any sports figure, any hero, any, you get over into love. You get a serious conversation about love. Boy, you, you got them by the heart. I don't care how much you have externally. There's a vulnerability there. There's a, a yearning there. There's a, something of importance there. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was I saw something with Elon Musk, you know, close to the richest person in the world. And he's talking about, you know, really the only thing that matters is love. That's the way it is. And yet, that definition you just talked about and taking it there is uh, available to us all at every moment. Yes. Yes. Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. So funny, isn't it? It's too close. It's too close to be recognized. Really. I think that that's the well, thing, isn't it? Yeah. Too close to everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I, too close. So that's a very, very cool way to think about it. Yeah. And, I agree. And then you said earlier about, and you've got a load of lovely quotes and that one you just mentioned about love isn't everything. It's the only thing I, I, I was lucky enough to get that one of your emails straight away. And I, 
my heart did skip a little bit. I thought that was fantastic. And then that other one is around belonging and how, you know, we come into the world innately belonging and then we lose sight of that because we identify with the parasite and perhaps, you know, through traumas and it's the natural way of things. And then the journey home is to go back and recognize that, you know, you're not going to get back to belonging by achievement, by accumulation, by any of that stuff. It's to recognize that it's always been there all along. So exactly. what, just can you just quickly explain why do you think we lose sight of that? And then, well, yeah. I think it's because human language, although I think initially it was an extension of cooperation, this will learn leading it a long ramp. Let me see if I can do it really, really quickly. Underneath the act work, what I'm known for is this thing called relational frame theory, several hundred studies, really helpful if you have kids who can't do language at all, don't have a sense of self, kids on the spectrum, intellectually disabled, but also in terms of raising IQ, et cetera, and understanding uh, how things work, like what you and I are doing now or how uh, psychotherapy works and so forth. But there's a pivot point. There's a smoking gun. There's a place where we do something that no other living creature on the planet does. And it happens around eight, about 12 months. Um, I, I've done some of the earliest research and it's been replicated several times. What is it? Well, you know, if if I were to hold up a, a can and say what's the and just say the word can to a 12 month old baby who was beginning the language journey. And then I would say to the baby can the baby would, you know, wobble its little head to try to find the picture of the can. You learn it in one direction, you drive it in two you know, the beginning of symbolic or relational learning. There's no other creature on the planet that does that. The language-trained chimps don't do that. If you do it, the language-trained chimps, which, you know, 98% of our genome is shared with them. You could probably have sex with them and have babies. You know, nobody's tried it that I know of. It would be a little dangerous. But they're that close. I mean, they're, well, no, when you learn it in one direction and test it in the other direction, it's chance. The language trained champs, the ones who've lived with humans being deliberately teaching them with plastic chips or signs. I'm here in Washoe County, Washoe the Chimp. You ever heard of that? That's because my colleague, Alan Gardner, in my department and his wife, Trixie Gardner, raised chimpanzees like babies. You could go visit, you know, the little hotel where they had, uh, you know, created the living environment for the for what they almost viewed as their children. And they had birthday parties for them. It was was wild. They never showed bidirectional. You learn it in one direction, you get it one direction. So what? Well, here's the so what. Initially, I think it meant that the troop, even before we became verbal, could extend cooperation. We're the cooperative primates. We are a thousand times more cooperative, well, a hundred times more cooperative than chimpanzees. And... That's why we were so successful in our small bands and troops. Well, if I could say, you know, apple and somebody will bring me an apple, that's like massively useful. But really quickly, and you can see it in the development of children, you get into not just apple, you get into difference and opposite and comparison. I'll give an example of coinage. If when is it the point that you knew that a dime is bigger than a nickel in American coinage? You have similar things in euros and so forth. Well, they don't learn it at two years old, but by four, three and a half, four, you learn it. Yeah, once you're there, you can imagine universes that have never been. If I do this, I'll get that, and that's better than this, all in your head. 
So cooperation turns into problem solving. Yeah. You got the tools to do it. And it starts going awry. What is the age at which suicide begins in humans? It's not two. It is four. Four Four-year-olds kill themselves deliberately. Think about it. Gosh. My first act book in 1999, I, this is the opening line of the book. New York Times has the date. A six-year-old child threw herself in front of a train today. The authorities said her mother had recently died of a terminal illness. Think about it. Think about how small you were. But you could imagine a universe in which I won't have mama, but if I go to heaven, I will. And it would make sense to throw yourself in front of a subway train. So this tool of problem solving that gives us this spectacular moment I could talk to you thousands of miles away also gives you what's the purpose of living. You know, in the end, it's a big ice ball. The sun is going to include the orbit of the earth. You realize that when it's a red giant, a red dwarf rather, and they expand, even they're called dwarfs, I guess. But we, the orbit of the earth will be inside the sun. <laughs> How much life's going to be happening on the earth? Uh, well, that would be none. You know, and there's either enough dark matter, it'll collapse back into an infinitely dense pea and explode and start over again, or there won't, in which case it'll expand forever into dark and eventually become completely dark. Either of those sound meaningful to you? This parasite, once it goes to problem solving and science and all of that, and every year it gets worse because we know more and more. Think about what your kids know now yeah, with their yeah. tools and what they've seen. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And so that problem solving machine, that the language creator also creates this sort of conceptual filter, doesn't it? Through which we experience yeah, everything and it deadens everything and, and, and we lose touch with that sense of being and, and I think, um, you know, we desperately need to reorientate our identification from that, from re- recognizing we have a mind, we are not the mind. Exactly. Back, back to the being that is innately whole, that we're fine all along. We don't need to stand in front of the mirror and say affirmations, I'm lovable, blah, blah, all that stuff. No, no, no. If you can just rediscover that being, it's perfectly whole as it is, and it's, no higher or lower than anyone else's. If if we got to that place, surely the world would be a better place. And we're getting a bit philosophical early here. Uh, yeah, we're getting way <laughs> philosophical, way philosophical. And back to this sense that we all kind of know, gut level, I think that that we know that this struggle to be okay about ourselves is not paying off. We've seen that. So how are we going to show up? You know, there's a reason why, you know, mindfulness is everywhere in the modern world. For example, you know, we're looking back to our ancient wisdom traditions. It's not just the East, by the way. It's in all of our deeper religious and wisdom traditions, whether it's repeated prayer or dancing or silence or something. I mean, you can't pick a single major religion that doesn't have it. And uh, we're trying to put it into our culture. Of course, it's kind of funny. We even screw that up. You know, I've done some research on this. There's a self, such a thing now as selfish mindfulness. It it took us to create it. You know, like you take care of the kids. I gotta go meditate. Uh, 
But I, I have heart for it. I understand what we're trying to do. We're trying to put the mind on a leash. And every year, year it gets more challenging because there's more and more and more and more that we're able to do with our problem-solving mind. And when we put it on a leash, try to find a way to connect with a deeper sense that's whole and free by its nature of awareness, period, end of story, not even awareness of anything. Yes. I think we can maybe get it less spooky by just saying, what would it take for you to be able to carry your own history? You're not going to subtract from your history. There's no delete button in the nervous system. You mentioned trauma earlier. You know, almost all of us have been traumatized in some small way. I mean, I'm old enough to know that people my age were stuck with diaper pens regularly. As for an infant, that's pretty damn, you know, and I don't want to make light of it. People have actually, of course, been abused and raped and been through wars and so forth. But not just that. I mean, you can look around and see others. I mean, I, I saw my brother fall out of the back of a station wagon and my dad mad as hell ripped out of the driveway and he fell on his head it still traumatizes i mean i can remember that memory now all of these years later with a sense of horror and i remember then probably four years old five years old having the thought that i'm not going to make it out alive you know these adults are going to kill me that's pretty traumatic so we're all, but that's nothing dramatic. Everybody's had experiences yeah. like that. Everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So well, as Gabo Mate says, isn't it? You know, it's it's not what happens to us. It's it's how we disconnect within us. And and I just want, want to pivot to use one of your words here, Stephen, just slightly to to act to acceptance mm-hmm. of therapy for a couple of reasons. Well, I'm a fan of it for a plethora of reasons. One being, I think it's like a gateway drug <laughs> to what we're talking about here, but packaged in a way that is digestible by the everyman, which I think is is such a skill. And then secondly, um, because it had such a profound effect for me, if I just very quickly, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief, yeah. a, quick, a quick story that happened to me. So um, I was in my 20s, had a bit of anxiety, and that manifested with insomnia. And it came on one night, before a university exam couldn't sleep panic mad panic anyway over time it then snowballed and it became one night became many nights became most nights and you know i was uh, developed elaborate (laughs) relaxation routines hot milk i got quite into sleeping pills doctor prescribed which were absolutely horrible didn't know a way out literally was just digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper it was yeah. very fortunate to meet a guy called Dr. Guy Meadows, who I've spoken to on this podcast, who uses ACT to help specifically with sleep oh, yeah. issues. Sure. I know Guy. And um, now one of the most, genuinely, one of the most important moments of my life, the most proper light bulb moment that, that has reverberated even through what we've spoken about thus far, through the where so much of my life, was when he just spoke about the difference between the thinking mind and the aware mind. And this was just like, oh, wow. Anyway, long story short, I stopped struggling and by turning towards the discomfort of my anxiety and insomnia, so doing the exact opposite to what everything was screaming at me to do, I eventually rediscovered my ability to sleep. And then that proliferated into other areas of my life when anxiety would show up when I was doing TV or radio, rather than being like, oh my God, go away feeling. I'd be like, hey, feeling, come on in, make yourself at home. And it's been utterly transformative. 
So first of all, first of all, I want to say a huge thank you, you know, and, and like you said, it's not about you, but the work that you've created and, and, you know, it will reverberate down the generations and, and already is a, having such a profound impact around the world. But then I wanted to take that story and, and just turn it towards you, because I know you went through something somewhat similar, albeit perhaps even more intense. And from that intense experience, ACT emerged. And this is the subject of your TED Talk, which I'd recommend anyone go and watch. It's 20 minutes or so long. It's absolutely superb. And it's about your experience on a brown and gold shag carpet, I think is the way to put it. So would you mind just just sharing that story, Stephen? Yeah, as a young uh, assistant professor, uh, uh, I had the good fortune of developing a panic disorder. It, it started in a, a department meeting where I was watching full professors fight, as I say in the TED Talk, in a way that only wild animals and full professors are capable of. And, you know, it tapped into, I didn't know at the time, but it tapped into my childhood history of my parents fighting with my dad's alcoholism, my my mother's struggles with depression and OCD and all of that. And they would just fight like cats and dogs. And it was terrifying. I mean, I just told a little earlier uh, episode. I mean, they were lovely, wonderful, loving people. I mean, I'm not I'm not judging them. They just didn't know how to get out of their own way at times. Well, I tapped into something. So I, I'm raising my hand just to say, would you please stop arguing? And can we work together? This is the Department of Psychology. This is embarrassing to see and by the time they called on me, my heart rate was going like 180 beats. And I, I literally couldn't make sound come out of my mouth. So I was like in front of the whole group as an untenured assistant professor opening and closing my mouth like a, a guppy out of water, you know. And that was humiliating and also terrifying. You're like, what was this to get so anxious that you can't function? And so then I did as I say, the logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological things. I try to turn it into a problem to be solved. Same thing you did with your first insomnia, big, you know, uh, big event. You start watching out for it, making sure it doesn't happen again, which means you're focusing on it, which means it's more present. Behind that is the thought. And if you don't, that would be really bad. When you think about things that could be really bad, guess what happens? You wake up in anxious arousal. That's the way the brain works. So there, where we got the parasite, you know, it's only 200,000 to 2.8 million years old, somewhere in there, because we know the language trained chimps split off maybe 3 million years ago. It's not that long ago. And they don't do what your 12-month-old baby does that puts you on this journey. But we're doing it and we're dealing with learning systems and brain systems that are half a billion or more years old. And so it's, you're getting aroused and awake and I'm getting more and more anxious. And of course I can notice that. And I know how far it can go because I've had a panic attack. So once you've had a panic attack, you can never go back because you know, that's like once you have an insomnia thing that goes so badly, you stay up all night long, no matter what you do, you know, you can actually have that happen. So you're no longer innocent. You'll never forget it. There's no delete button in the nervous system, right? So what are you going to do? Well, when you do the logical things, you, you make it worse. I mean, it looks like you made it better because 
when you take the sleeping pill, then it doesn't. Or when I say no to the talk I would have to give in front of 100 people, which would be terrifying because more and more things became terrifying, I immediately feel better. And I have a whole rationale. You know, I'm helping my graduate students. I'll have them give the talk. What a kind mentor I am. No, I'm feeding the beast, dude. You know, it's a, it's a metaphor and act. It's like throwing steak at a, a, a baby tiger. Yeah, but then the tiger grows, gets bigger and it wants more steak. And it will just happily eat more of your life. So I hit bottom uh, three years later waking up in the middle of the night with a panic attacks regularly, but now having one where I was convinced I was having a heart attack because I had all the symptoms of a heart attack and that hadn't happened before. And then you can watch the TEDx talk, but realizing in however many minutes I sat there, you know, reaching out for the phone to call for the ambulance and then somehow or another, some other part of me pulling my hand back, you know, I'm just watching my hand go out and back. And I, as if I know, don't make that call. This is, and then having kind of an out-of-body experience of looking at myself there and realizing I wasn't having a heart attack. I was just having another form of a panic attack, which was so horrifying because it means it's now taken not only my ability to move around, do things, that I can't even freaking sleep. You know, I can't trust my own body anymore. It will give me the full symptoms of a heart attack. Where am I going to go where this anxiety monster won't follow me? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You have no way out. And I sat in that moment for a pretty long time, I know, because when I finally stood up, I had... You know, when you have tears that dry and they like burn, like the tracks burn, because I'm sitting there crying when I stood up, uh, that's what I had. But what I, I didn't st stand, stand up until this finally came to me. I don't have a way out, but I do have a way in. I caught that there was a voice in my head telling me to run and fight and hide. And that that voice, if it was noticed by me, wasn't just me. You know, the awareness part of me that noticed the voice wasn't the voice. Yeah. I like the way guys talking about it, you know, that those two kind of modes of mind and this awareness, pure awareness mind that was part of the out of body thing. It's easy to tap into, by the way. Just I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example so people can try this. It won't be so spooky. But when you leave and look back at yourself, that witnessing, noticing, pure aware part is looking. And so from there, it was a lot easier to see what I was doing. And part of me just rebelled against the what I call in liberated mind, the dictator within. You know, I actually said out loud, you can make me hurt, you can make me suffer, but I'll tell you one thing you can't do. You can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. You know, like chin stuck out, like literally shouting into the darkness at 2.30 in the morning, thinking that I was having a heart attack, but then finding that I wasn't. And then making a declaration of independence. F it. I am not going to run from me. And you can't make me. Well, that's a transformational moment. That's like, 
a journey where you've been slogging and slogging and slogging in one direction and you suddenly realize, oh, like there's like waters and flowers and so forth, but they're all in a completely different direction. And then you turn. How long does it take you to turn? Like that. You turn. And it doesn't mean you'll never lose your way and so forth, but, you know, you literally can feel the weight come off your shoulders. You can feel the a different sense of consciousness is present in which it's okay to be you with your history. And we carry that with us. All of us do all the time. That's why I said, you know, what is it going to take to carry your history? Everybody listening to us is, has a painful history they're carrying, but they're also carrying a part of themselves that is aware of that. And that part of them is not the part that's painful. Yeah don't notice it because it's it's from it's not what you look at it's what you where you look from yes yes we're so looking so used to looking at objects objectively and missing the subject the subjectivity and uh uh, i mean it sounds like that was an awakening when you were saying that and describing it just then it didn't it just occurred to me i'm the old eckhart tolle story he talks about so much you know i can't live with myself hang on is there two of me it sounds very much like that. Very much, but you know, and and I I don't kind of like it sounding special because that's why I said it's ninety some percent of the human population, if you ask the question right, have had spiritual experiences. And one reason I mentioned the psychedelics is how commonly we can actually produce these if we get a little bit of medication help and the right orientation. But they always have a characteristic quality. It isn't just Eckhart Tolle. It's any of yeah. Yes, it, it's your grandma. Talk to her in more detail yeah. about any times or any sports person doing flow, going through flow for example. the flow. That state of flow is very close. It's very close to what we're talking about, where you get out of your own way. You, you allow your own history and so forth. Like in the case of athletic training, you allow those skills to just play out without figuring out, categorizing, judging, predicting, evaluating, all of which slows it down. I mean, to go into the flow and to actually be able to, in competitive sports and so forth, to respond in microseconds, you can't be, you know, thinking about the parabolic function of a ball when you hit it and still hit a home run. You know, as Yogi Berra said, don't think, just hit. The problem is that we don't get much training about how not to think. Yeah. And, and if you try not to think by thinking, you're doing more thinking. It's like trying not to worry about insomnia. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That begs the question. How do you think less or not think? You got to learn how to put your mind on a leash. And it means you've got to find a part of you that's outside of the thinking problem solving mind. Fortunately, it's been there all along. It was there when you were born and, and mama's eyes met you. But it's even been built out by language. I mean, the part of language that builds it out. You know, we are born as neonates to have some sense of the awareness of others. We have theory of mind skills. How do we know that? Well, even babies, you know, if, if you come and let's say you're um, playing with toys and then it's cleanup time and you pointed at a toy that you can't reach, but the baby can, they'll, they'll grab the toy and they'll try to put it away. If a stranger comes in, I'm talking about babies before they get language that young, just enough that they can reach and, and, you know, which is really young. If a stranger comes in and points at a toy they can't reach, the baby will grab the toy and give it to the stranger. 
So babies know, oh, you want me to clean up or, oh, you want, in other words, we can put ourselves at birth. That's how cooperative a species we are behind the eyes of others and have some sense of what they need. We're already extending our consciousness to others. But what language does is that establishes these things of I, you, and here, there, and now, and then that are these perspective-taking cognitions. And when that gets fully formed, now you can reflect back on your own consciousness. And it's a transformational moment. Have you ever heard of infantile amnesia? Here's what happens. You've seen it if you're a parent. I remember feeling so, it was so sweet and sad when my, I have four kids. The oldest is 52 and the youngest is 17. So I've had kids in the home for 55 years and Stevie goes to school without a break. But we used to sing Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, We loved watching it when he was a little one, like a two-year-old. And so I, that song is in my head. There's two, there's four, there's six, there's eight. Shunting trucks and hauling freight. I bet you some others listening to me know the song. I, I know that one as well, yeah. Well, so Stevie hits this point where consciousness shows up in a different way. And we know what it is. It's when the I hear nowness of awareness that comes from learning, not just the nonverbal form of I know what's going on behind other people's eyes, but the more verbal form of like this. Uh, If I was Simon and Simon was me, what would I see right now? Anybody listening to me can do that. You can take person and move it around. You could say, if I was over on the side of the room looking at back of myself right now, what would I see? Anybody can do that. You can go there and have there become here in imagination. Babies can't do that. But once you get language going, you can. You can say, if I was wiser 10 years from now, way wiser, and could give myself a bit of advice now, what would I tell myself? Or if I could meet that eight-year-old who's hor- or five-year-old brother who's horrified when his brother fell out of the back of the station wagon, if I could, what would I want to say to him? You with me on this? Mm, Time. Nice. Time, okay? I did them in the order that they show up developmentally. People do IU first, then here, there, then now, yeah. then. Yeah. But right, then that happens. I hear, I hear now shows up. This now verbal ability to move perspective around, not the innate one that we come because we're cooperative primates. When that happens, you can no longer remember what happened to you as an infant. You know, just six months later, and I'm watching this because I'm a scientist and I'm watching this, even measuring this in my son. He doesn't remember Thomas the Trank engine anymore. He can't sing the song. We're showing him pictures of stuff. And he, no, I don't remember that. But he remembered it just a year earlier. But of course, it's in his brain. He hasn't forgotten it. But my point being, there's a break that's so transformational. We are literally now a different creature. Why? Because we have human consciousness. And human consciousness is not just this intuitive, nonverbal ability to be part of the group and belong. It's the that plus 
the cognitive abilities to take a perspective or point of view and to move it around freely, simply with instruction. Yeah. So I, you know, I had an out of body experience. Well, that's as if you're two people and you're two places. If, you know, I, I said, how are you going to struggle? And how are you going to deal with the stuff you're struggling with? Can I do a little uh, yeah. 60 second exercise for people? Yeah. Or I'll maybe I'll do it two minutes so they can yeah. actually do it. Yeah. All you need to do this, this exercise is take something that you really struggle with now. If you've got that, then just imagine you don't have to do this eyes closed. You just imagine that you've taken it out of your body, even what this whole issue is. There's feelings about it. There's thoughts about it. There's memories about it. There's urges about it. There's a history to it. There's a problem you've got, a psychological problem. Are you with me on this? It has an extension. There's a history. Grab all of that without analyzing it and just put it in your lap, metaphorically. And that's that thing that's been pushing around for how long? Probably a long time. You could probably find in at least theme years earlier, similar themes, maybe even the same issue has been around for a while because we don't just suddenly struggle with things. All right. All right. Here you can do it. Eyes closed or eyes open. Imagine leaving your body just like Harry Potter with a little blue light that comes out of your head. And now you're going to look back at yourself and just look at yourself sitting there. But now from the outside, you can't see what's in the lap, but you remember just moments ago it was there. And I've got just a few questions to ask of you. What do you feel about this person called you? Do you like them? You're looking at a whole person, a complete person, a valid person. Do you love this person? And then remember that there's this thing on the lap. And now mentally go to one side of the room or other. Just walk yourself in, in imagination to one side of the room you're in and look back. And now see yourself probably sitting there. Or you might be lying down on a couch or wherever you are. And I have the same set of questions. What do you feel about this person you see over there? Is that a whole person, a valid person? Do they belong here? Do you like them? Do you love them? And then remember that there's this thing on their lap. And then we'll do this last thing. You realize that no, this is not now, this is 10 years from now, and your life has unfolded unfold, profoundly in a wise direction. And you remember you were listening to this podcast and this weirdo was having you do these weird things with leaving your body. And you were looking at yourself from across the room with this stuff you're struggling with. What was it? Oh yeah, 10 years ago, I was struggling so much with that. And if life had unfolded in this wiser place and you could somehow magically write yourself a little note that goes back over those 10 years as to how to be with yourself to help carry what's in the lap in a way that is not oppressive, that is not harmful, that is part of your life journey. If you had just a, a whisper you could give across the years to your younger self from this wiser future self, what would you want to say? 
And just imagine the sentence or the words. Just imagine it. Don't say it out loud, but just imagine it. And we'll write it down in memory. And then we'll come back from the 10 years in the future. And we'll move over and stand in front of where we were sitting or lying down. But remember, you got this thing and this note in your pocket. And then you're back inside your body again. And you look down and sure enough, there's that issue. And we'll bring it back and put it in your body. And then we'll read the note. So if we were doing this in a live stream, I'd want to see the chats as to what's on the note. And I can almost predict exactly what's on the notes. Not every one would be different things. Any chance you'd be willing to share yours? Yes. Yeah. Mine was just, it was actually very much around welcoming, accepting, not struggling, not fighting, all those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, and I've done this literally with people who are like in 28-day inpatient drug programs, you know, and they've lost almost everything inside their addiction. And I do this, you know, and some of these guys are all tatted up and wearing leathers and they're, they're scary looking and they, they say things that are frightening because they've learned how to, you know, survive on the street and stuff like that. And what do they read? They read stuff that is right out of an act book. Or, you know, they're just these sweet, poignant, it's okay to be you. You're going to be okay. Uh, you can do it. This will pass. Open up. Stop running. It's not who you are. I mean... If we can do something like that, and I, I'm i telling you, when I actually do this in groups, literally every single person can do that. Yeah, yeah. It means we're already carrying the wisdom within. We, we already know what to do. It's just the organ between your ears doesn't know. And all, all I did there, by the way, is I tapped into the awareness part of your mind. That is this witnessing, noticing, more spiritual sense of self. And I tapped into it by knowing that part of the cognitive basis of that, it starts out non-cognitive, starts out with you know, what happens when your mama's eyes meet you in the first 24 hours of birth, after birth. But we build it out into the, this witnessing, noticing, more cognitively flexible sense of self, where we can deliberately imagine what it's like to be in the Ukraine, or what it's going to be like if we don't handle climate change, or, you know... Uh, so on. Um, suddenly, wisdom shows up. Well, it must must mean we're carrying the wisdom. We just have a hard time tapping into it because we're dancing this dance that the clown suit tells us we have to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We just have a hard time tapping into it because we're dancing this dance the clown suit tells us we have to in order to be included i really enjoyed that Stephen. you know i'm not a great visualizer but uh that that was uh that was powerful actually and well i don't think of myself as or or the uh the conceptual self tells me i'm not good at visualizing um now now, you mentioned addicts who are Uh at the end of their tether and so you also mentioned flexibility i don't think you mentioned psychological flexibility but but psychological flexibility right which is really what act is about um developing and and it's been described as the super skill of resilience and mental health and it's about that ability to be with whatever's taking place in in your experience in the present moment fully without defense and there are so many ways we turn from experience the most obvious being the the addictive stuff so substances but there's also activities, relationships through to you, you mentioned the clown suit, the subtle stuff, humor or vanity or even overthinking. And I want to get into the six steps of, of act and because sure. they are the ways to develop psychological flexibility. But could you just very quickly give your take on what psychological flexibility is and, and how powerful it, it can be and how important it is? Well, defined in a narrow way, it, it accounts for about 55% of everything we know about how change happens in research. If you broaden it a little bit, it pulls up in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it's a pretty dang important concept. Now, excuse me for sounding like I'm being graspy. In order to expand it, you really have to bring in a lot of theorists and stuff who are not part of the ACT tradition. But um I know this because we've recently looked at every study that ever figured out in proper statistical ways, what is the pathway of change when you're trying to deliberately improve mental and behavioral health. So, but fortunately it's a very, very small set of skills. Uh, It's sort of six things that are three things that are one thing. Yeah. Um, I'll say it in, in, in a way that implies the six, but is more the three because it's a short paragraph if I do that. We need to be learn how to be more emotionally and cognitively flexible and open without clinging and without disappearing, without suppression. We need to show up in the moment and being able to look at what's important inside and out from this more spiritual sense of self we just explored uh, without disappearing into worry and rumination. And then we need to take those skills and focus on what brings meaning and purpose into our life by choice and create habits around it. And by the way, extend it to your relationships and take care of your body. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So I've just told you everything that behavioral science knows, different concepts, lots and lots of methods, 
but it's a small set of skills. That's why you already know it. It's, your life has already told you these things, but the organ between your ears can't hear it because it interprets it as problem solving. You probably, I'll take an example of insomnia. You know, the, the early paradoxical work where you would, you know, tell people, now, for whatever you need, whatever you do tonight, you need to stay up, stay awake. You need to, you know, and people freaking go to sleep. <laughs> the problem is, is once they realize that, they try to use it as a trick. Oh, yeah. if I convince myself I should stay up, then I'll go to sleep. No, you won't anymore, dude. No, because <laughs> yeah. it won't work as a trick. It only worked initially because the therapist had your credibility and and sort of spun your head around. The same thing with uh, you know sexual arousal. You probably know you know telling people not to have erections, but uh, you know is one of the best ways to deal with not having erections because of course it's a self amplifying loop of oh my god I'm flaccid. And that's about the least arousing thought on the planet. And but if I tell you not to have one. Well, heck, I'm free to have one. Woohoo! Um, so the early masters and Johnson, you know, those kind of things. But paradox doesn't work very well because we're watching how it works and it spoils it. But my point being, we've had moments when we put the mind on a leash. We've had moments when we're in the flow. We've had moments when we're present. We have moments when we're connecting our spiritual sense of self or when values are really clear or we're committed and we're following them and so forth. We've had moments of all of these features of psychological flexibility. And then here comes the problem-solving organ saying, oh, I've got to figure it out. What you need to do is... And that part of you you know, will run you ragged with the rules it comes up with that when rigidly followed, never work. You can't get there from here. So putting the mind on the leash means really learning to find a part of you that's bigger than your problem-solving mind. And we're intuitive creatures. We have lots of wisdom that can't just be put into a problem-solving rule, but catch that, this more spiritual part of you that is beyond categorization. I mean, what is what are the features of the spiritual part of you? It has no features. No, featureless, yes. It's featureless. Right, yeah. Everywhere boundless, you go. Boundless, open, empty, accepting. It's yes, everything, everything yeah. but nothing. Yeah. I mean, if if we talk about it as a deep sense of consciousness and awareness, what do you know consciously about being unconscious? When you're fully unconscious, you don't know a damn thing about it, by definition. So it, it's like everywhere you go, there you are. So if, you know, if I just took this uh, can of soda I'm drinking and made it everywhere in the universe, it would disappear. We might be living inside a can of soda now. How would we know? So consciousness has this weird quality of it's not thing-like and, and it doesn't have edges. And so, you know, I, you can't figure it out and take the words I'm saying right now and get there. You have to sort of do things like meditation practice or that kind of leap into wholeness that sometimes may happens with the Eckhart Tolle moment spiritual experiences or... Yeah in small ways, what you just did. When yeah. you went and looked at yourself, went to the side of the room and went to a distant future, you're tapping into the 
core of this witnessing noticing part of you yeah from which all the rest of this is possible absolutely i mean i would also i just add to that there's obviously the progressive meditation paths but there's also just that the direct path which is becoming increasingly prominent where it's just becoming aware of the fact of being aware and then noticing that you know everything that we ever have and ever could and ever will experience is arising in that and yeah yeah it's it's the context not the content so it's shifting from from the the content to the context and just a quick word on um the examples you gave about the paradoxical intervention for example with sleep or <laughs> with erections where once you realize it's and you try and use it as a trick and the same is true of acceptance isn't it yeah it's such a it's such a common thing with acceptance oh i'm gonna i'm gonna accept this feeling but actually in the back of your mind there's a little thing going because i want to get rid of it and exactly. that's actually for me why now i've started to instead of talking about acceptance it's it's really about welcoming and and that yeah. makes such a difference you know it's and i know you talk about receiving yeah. uh, so for me just that shift in language welcoming instead of acceptance is really profound but could we just quickly rattle through um Stephen, the, the six steps yeah. which i know are the smallest set to quote you that have the biggest change yes uh, th these six steps if implemented can have the most profound impact on your life so could we just rattle through the six of them just so people know yeah, how so to do act so if you take the kind of pillars I talked about, which is being more open, aware, and actively engaged, I did earlier. If you break it down, even in the sentences I gave, I gave all six, but let's do it in slow motion. Each of those pillars, like being open means being emotionally open and accepting, and by the way, non-clinging. Turns out joy junkies are as miserable as anxiety avoiders. Uh, so it's it's not a happy thing to try to cling on to happy. Uh, if you want to fix it in place, I'll take you down to 4th Street and show you how you can buy a little bag of things, something that will do that and it'll ruin your life. Um, so you learn to sort of take what's useful inside your emotions and allow them to ebb and flow, positive and negative, so-called, because every single emotion has something of use, but... Sometimes they're just historical. If you extracted the use, and all you need to do is notice the wave. Sometimes there's something in there, like oh, I'm feeling a little nervous as you're about to decide whether or not to go home with somebody from a bar. That might be important. Do you know the people who've been sexually abused push down that emotion, that nervousness, and it's much more likely to be abused again? Why? Because it, you don't know what you're feeling. Feelings tell you stuff. You know, if you're trying to make a decision about a, you know, a, a date or a mate or a job or whatever, you better have your emotional intelligence out there, right? You better have your ability to feel now. So learning how to feel fully and without needless defense and without needless clinging. You need to watch your mind give you formulations. And when you need a lots of additional formulations, being able to produce them, being able to think cognitively in a way that's flexible and fluid and has many options, but without entanglement, without disappearing into them, without losing your conscious choice. Yeah, without it's becoming an alternative. them. Yeah. You have many, 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 many voices. You know, if, and if you want to see how many, uh, okay, have this thought. I'll say just five words. I'm whole, complete, 
valid, perfect. I almost guarantee you by the time I got the perfect, you say, no, I'm not. <laughs> Didn't you? <laughs> of course, uh, you know, yeah. Whole, complete, sounds kind of good, valid, perfect. No, I'm not perfect. By the way, it only perfect means thoroughly made. Are you not thoroughly made? Fact means like factory. It means made. Per means thoroughly. But I get it. You know, of course you have. But my point being, you know, if you said anything about yourself, you'll hear the little, little echo of the other side. Uh, so, or about anybody else, you know. This person I'm dating is wonderful, in a little voice, except for her. <laughs> okay. I mean, even four-year-olds understand goofy with horns on one shoulder and goofy with halo on the other shoulder. We have these little dialogues in our head because we have multiple voices about everything. So what we want to do is sort of notice the different thoughts, take what's useful, and leave the rest. If we need new thoughts, being able to produce additional thoughts, but without entanglement. That's openness. Awareness, we need to come into the present moment. Well, that's kind of ironic. That's where we are all the time. Yeah, but we disappear in thought to the past or future, the conceptualized past or future, when we mismanage that. And it's not that thinking about the future is a bad idea. No, just don't disappear into it. And it's not that learning from the past is a bad idea. No, just don't ruminate about it. So. Yeah, cognition and problem solving is useful. We have thoughts about the past and future. But notice that those thoughts are happening in the present. And notice what else is in the present. Open your freaking eyes. You've got people who love you and will support you and will empower you and will work with you around you. And sometimes you're so inside your freaking head, you don't even know that you're in a, an environment that will allow you to succeed with what you deeply care about. So notice what's going on outside, but also notice what's going on inside. That's so this increase in awareness. And the only place you can do that from cleanly is from this witnessing, noticing sense of self of catching the self as context, the observer. Don't turn it into a thing that you look at or hold on to just, this is something just to touch because it's just there all it. the time anyway. Yeah, just to yeah. see it, just enough to know, yeah, it's always there. Because if it wasn't there, you'd be unconscious and you wouldn't know where you were anyway. But uh, so notice what's present. So this is a, awareness. And, you know, things like meditation is good practice. But I like what you said there. You know, I think we've made this into such a heavy effort. You know, it's in the wisdom traditions, that old joke of going to the monk and saying, you know, how long will this take? You know, and, and he says, yeah. oh, it'll take two years at least. And he says, well, what if I work every day and I really practice at it and I, I try and I focus? And I said, he said, well, then it'll take at least a decade. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because the same loops that you talked about, about insomnia yeah. or anything else, yeah. you get these problem solving loops interfering with the awareness mind which doesn't need anything to get there. We're already there. It just needs to clear the underbrush yeah. out enough yeah, that you yeah. can even be there. Okay, so now we've got six. We've got emotional openness and flexibility, cognitive openness and flexibility, flexible, fluid, and voluntary intention to the present moment where you can broaden or narrow, shift or stay from this witnessing, noticing sense of self. 
that's awareness. Those four, pretty good definition of mindfulness, I guess, you know, if yeah. you put a word to it. From there, that now affords something where the rubber meets the road, which is, okay, now that you're here and open, what do you want your life to be about? What are you up to? What do you care about? What are your values? And there's four really fast ways in. One, where do you hurt? Flip it over, you'll find out where you care. Two, what are the moments that are really vital, that lift you up, that are connected, like, wow. Slow it down, unpack it, you'll find your values in there. Three, if you're writing your life as a story, what kind of story are you trying to write here? You don't know the characters, they may change, but you can determine the theme of the story. What kind of story are you up to? What are you writing here? So the capacity to create um, an author, you know, authentically your, your life. And finally, who are your heroes? That's an easy one. Take a hero in a domain, because even kids have got this. And then slow down. Why are they your heroes? And I bet you in there are things that you want to manifest in your life. Yeah. Something in there. It isn't just the, the car they drive or the, or the mansion they're in. Yeah. It's something yeah, yeah. about how they are in the world. Well, okay. If you want to be, that's your values. And then the final one is now, how do I build habits so that even when I'm not noticing it, I'm gradually getting better at producing values-based habits. And everything we know about behavior change says do that by repetition and by larger patterns. That's the six. And you could read a lot of self-help books to work on them and you can really, you know, and all that, but that's the six. And then the two things I would say, and by the way, socially extended. So that if you're being more open with your own emotions, take the time to be more compassionate about others. If you're being more open to your thoughts, take the time to have genuine conversations where you can really listen to others. If you care about your values, look at where shared values land because community is important. And finally, take care of your body. You know, like, so that's it. There we go. Now, one thing you didn't mention, Stephen, which I think is really valuable, is is about diffusion. And mm. so, when I had my insomnia, I learned to when I had the thought in the middle of the night, going, "I'm not going to sleep. Tomorrow's going to be hell." Oh, I'm having the thought that. I'm not yeah. going to sleep. I'm having the thought that tomorrow is going to be hell and just creates that bit of a gap. And, but I know that you've given your mind a name, George. Yeah. Now I actually, yeah. since finding that I've, I've played a little bit with this uh, in the last few days. So when I've been in the library, in fact, just today trying to do some writing and my mind's going, just check the news. Oh, there's, you know, or I, I went on YouTube because I had to see a video that was related to what I was writing about. And then there are some other videos that are interesting because obviously it's tailored to the stuff I'm sure, into. Sure. And it, the mind's like, just have a quick look. And I'm like, George, thank you, George. And it was it was incredibly <laughs> powerful. But yeah, could you just 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 quickly, because I do want to sure. uh, come back to the value thing, just quickly, because I just think diffusion is such a wonderful uh, little tool for people to be able to create, get their ego on a leash. If you could just yeah, quickly it, talk it, to it this. It's a powerful tool. And I have a TEDx talk where I walk through 12 methods and I, uh, of diffusion. Uh, the TEDx, if you look, that comes up will probably be my night on the carpet. But the next one, if you look, yeah. will be, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's called something like uh, mental mental breaks, like a break. Yeah, that's it, that's it, yeah. Mental breaks, meaning like. Yes, yes, yes. 
And I gave it at a, at a Davidson Academy, which is a, a school within a school here at my college that is a national center for people who have IQs of 99.99% or higher, basically unmeasurable intelligence. And why? Because they suffer just as much as everybody else, if not more. And I thought that's just so interesting. I mean, you can be freaking brainiacs. I mean, eight-year-olds who are in college, I mean, literally just out of otherworldly level of intelligence and still be miserable. In fact, not even at a lower rate. And why? Because they need to learn to put their, all of that cognizing on a leash. And diffusion is our, our description for tools that sort of dampen down the automatic impact of thoughts to give you a choice about whether or not you're going to follow thoughts. And there's um, hundreds of techniques. You can make them up. I teach people how to make them up. But let me just give you a few examples. Stephen, you couldn't just talk to the George one, could you? Because I just think this is so beautiful. Yeah, well, you know, uh, okay, so you have this problem-solving mind that is the compilation of many, many different voices. I mean, your mom and dad are in there, you know, your siblings, things you've read, on and on it goes. And when you're facing any situation, you have a series of verbal options that are showing up, little metaphorically like voices in your head. And sometimes it literally, you can even hear it. You're going to, I can hear my dad's voice in my head or my mom's voice in my head. But the giving the mind a name is take that part that's speaking and literally just give it a name. Why? Because when you have a person you're interacting with who has a name, you know you have a little moment of choice about the directions that they're giving you, about whether or not they're useful, wise, and worthy of being followed. I mean, if you had a, a little gnome falling around telling you what to invest in, you know, and it was constantly, you know, I'm dating myself, but would say, Enron, Enron, you know, look how much it's going on, you know, right before it goes bankrupt and lost everything, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you probably eventually learn not to bet your money on the little advisor that's following you around. But we have a voice within that sounds like our judgmental mind and we follow it automatically. So when you give it a name, you put a little tiny crack between the, the part of you that hears this more awareness mind and the part of you that's problem solves and judges and predicts and evaluates. And in that little crack, life can happen because choice can happen. Alternatives can happen. Freedom can happen. You can have thoughts without fighting with them or, do, or doing what they say. Or and identifying so, with them, yeah. Identifying with them, having them be capital T true or untrue or having to convince yourself that they're not true or anything. You can just hear them like you would if somebody was talking to you. You do that with kids in the back seat if you have to you know, drive to your vacation yes. home. <laughs> so it's not like you don't know how to do it. Yeah. At your best, you know how to have a voice where you listen, but you don't do anything with it unless it's really important. If a kid's in the back seat, say, oh my God, there's a, a snake, you know, you'd listen to it. But if they're quarreling about what happened with their last monopoly game it goes through one ear and out the other how what couldn't you do that with yourself yeah, yeah. you could are we there yet thank you george no we're yeah. not yeah <laughs> awesome awesome yeah and uh, i think that thank you part is important because 
if you know if the kids are saying or the mind is saying oh my god and it's really of importance okay then we'll do something i'm not saying the you know stuck my finger in my ears going yeah 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 i'm not going to listen to you no because then uh, you know i'm cutting myself off from information so it i'm i'm glad i've got my problem solving voice following me around george is sometimes helpful when i'm doing my taxes he's massively helpful when I'm fixing my car, he's massively helpful. When I, I, you know, my trash can wouldn't open and he was massively helpful. Uh, peace of mind, love, purpose, values, not so helpful. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, beautifully put. That's, so, that's such a good distinction to make. Yeah, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater with the ego, but at the same time, knowing it, it's not us. Now, just the last last thing, Stephen, yeah. um, is so just to run through the the six steps that as I as I read them. So I'm just going to read them back because I just want to what, what struck me when I was going through them. And this is I read them somewhere in this order. So awareness, that transcendent sense of self, yeah, confusion, yeah. standing back, noticing you're having the thought give your mind a name, George. So you're basically dropping out of thought into awareness. So it's a form of mindfulness. Having a dispassionate interest in experiencing your own emotions, in your words, saying yes to the echoes of the past. Feel what needs to be felt even when it's hard. Coming into the present, what's here now? What can I see, hear, feel, taste, all that stuff. Then the values part. So choosing your values and making having a values-based action in life. Now, I've just got a, a quick question for you. Actually, I say it's quick. I, I'm not sure if it is, um, but it, it but it, it goes like this, which is that you said, for example, in terms of finding out your values, who are your heroes? Now, I once um, get, gave a, a talk where I was speaking about this, and then I suggested that, and someone actually came up to me afterwards and said, "Well, but what if you're on a on an estate and your heroes are the sort of gangster types, and they're your heroes, and you want to adopt their values?" So my question really is around identifying the difference between egoic values and then the values of the transcendent sense of self because the values of awareness itself and we've spoke about its qualities open accepting humble yet fulfilled all of those things i thought living the values of the transcendent self which is that's the same in me as it is in you although we will express it differently because we have different body minds that to me i thought trying to express those express those values of of the transcendent sense of self rather than perhaps tripping up on, on the egoic values that could sometimes get hijacked by the voice in our head. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, you know, although this method of your heroes and so forth is a quick way for many, it turns out, as I said, these are the six that are three that are one, that in order really to do values work, you have to have that sense of consciousness and connection, that emotional and cognitive flexibility and openness, that attentional flexibility and to make it real, be able to commit to it. So my point being that really to dive into your values, period, end of story, without any preparation and uh, without walking through the set of psychological skills you need to do this is hard. Uh, I mean, you use the example of a a criminal hero, but I'll give you another one, which is that, uh, you know, we will not, allow ourselves to value something in areas where we are unwilling to be hurt. We just won't allow ourselves to see it. You'll understand what I'm saying, but if I just said, what's the single most common emotional reaction 
that I get in therapy when people touch their deepest values? And the answer is they begin to cry. And you can feel it yourself. If it's really deeply, it's like the secret you never would tell anybody. It's that deep that what you really want, what you really care about, what you really hope for, what you really dream of, you know, this is right on the edge of where pain happens, right? That's why when I went through the four, I said, take pain, flip it over, you'll find your values. So you better have some emotional openness or you can't afford to care. So I'm taking, I, I agree with what you said. I actually wrote a piece about this in a magazine called The New Atlantist, where I'm walking through all the things that we need to have in place to be able to to uh, have values and to care. Let me, can I actually use a, a, an, a sports metaphor to sort Oh, of yeah. Well, it's a beautiful sports metaphor to finish, sure. I just finished a, a blog, which you, you can find on medium.com or on psychtoday.com, yeah. uh, psychology today, the two places I put my blogs other than at my website. And I think I, I called it something like everything important about mental health you, you uh, learned in the gym. We're going to need to work on our stretching. We're going to need to be flexible. That's very much like being more emotionally open, more cognitively open. We're going to have to have strength. What is the strength? What is really moves us forward? I think it's our deepest sense of purpose, what our values are. We're going to have to work on our endurance. What is that? That's the grit to persist, to commit, to follow that journey, to follow those over and over and over again. We're going to be able to, we need to be able to deploy those skills in a way, consciously, that sort of fits the moment. We have to have good timing and focus. And what is that? That's that attentional flexibility. I mean, there's literally people who've won gold medals at the Olympics using ACT. Um, I know their sports coaches and I know what they're doing. And there's some teams like China that are just going act crazy. It's everywhere in there. And yeah, of course, you've got to take care of your body if you're not going to. You know, uh, you know, if you're not taking care of diet, sleep, and exercise, uh, and in team sports, you're going to be able, you're going to have to add that attention to extending these same kinds of things. We together are building our teamwork and our strength and our endurance. And our, well, if you kind of use that as a way of just thinking about the skills that you're going to need to navigate mental resilience, they're not that different than physical resilience. Yeah. They call on different methods and so forth, but they're sort of deeply resonant. And one of the things that's in that, me that message that I just want to say is you would never, ever think, oh, I'm sick now. My body's falling apart. I guess I need to start exercising. You know, like, it, well, you might do that, but you'd realize, like, come on. I should have been working on my physical strength, endurance flexibility, et cetera, from the beginning. I, you know, exercise and taking care of diets, sleep, et cetera, is just part of it. But we can easily get into think of thinking of, oh, my mental health, that happens when it breaks down. That's when I worry about it. No, it's a 24-7, not one out of five for the people. It's five out of five. And if we don't know that after two years of COVID, wake up. You know, you are going to be tested in life and just like you are physically. Uh, if you're uh, uh, somebody who cares about sport and fortunately science can help you out. They can make it simpler and um, can channel that wisdom within 
towards creating the skills that will be there when you need them. And the time to start working on them is uh, now. Great advice. And ACT is as good a tool as any out there. I'm an evangelist for it. And Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really do appreciate it. Just do you want to point people in the direction of your work and your website so people can lap up more of your wisdom? <laughs> well, sure. It's easy to follow me if you just go to stephenchayes.com. Stephen with a V, Melissa C. My dad's name is Charlie. stephenchayes.com. And click on yes, please send it to me. Uh, and I'll send you a little seven item thing about what psychological flexibility is just a little you know emails every two or three days and then i'll send out the newsletter i don't spam people if you ever get tired of it one click you're gone don't worry about it but if you don't even want to do that just take psychological flexibility or acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training when it's used in other settings like business or sport and just google it and you'll find lots of free resources they're out there a ridiculous number of books and so forth. And and I do think it's important that ACT is not about kind of ACT uberalis. It's a doorway to a set of things that you'll find many, many people are talking about in their own ways, in their own language. But when you kind of know what you're looking for, it's easy to see. It's kind of like when you've decided to buy a car and suddenly they're all around you and you realize, oh my goodness, so many people are driving this car and never noticed it. When you get what psychological flexibility is, I bet you, Simon, you've seen this. You look at all these things that people have been doing all along, and, and there it is, there it is, there it is. And it's not because we gave it to them. It's because we as a human species have been on this journey of trying to learn how to be wise, how to be whole and free. And it's just that behavioral science is catching up. And so I'm not at all interested about being grabby and having to be act over all us. Just take what's useful, leave the rest, but do look at what the science says, and then you'll see around you lots of ways, whether it's a, the yoga class or the meditation retreat, your church group, or this new psychotherapy thing that somebody's come up with that is tapping into the skills that you know you need to develop to allow yourself to live in this modern world and have a modern mind that can step up to the 24 seven challenge of the world we've created. Fantastic. Well, Stephen Hayes, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. I've loved spending the last bit of time with you and uh, just wish you all the best and thank you for all your life's work. It's tremendous. It was an awesome conversation. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.